This week's Security Ledger podcast is sponsored by DigiCert. DigiCert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and the Internet of Things. Check them out at digicert.com. Hello, and welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. I'm Paul Roberts, the Editor-in-Chief at the Security Ledger. In this week's episode number 107, the Department of Homeland Security announced the creation of a new National Risk Management Center last week. But don't we already have one of those? We'll talk with two experts on critical infrastructure security to see what the new center means for the nation's efforts to secure critical infrastructure. But first, the Black Hat Briefings Conference kicks off this week in Las Vegas. The annual event, which is sometimes referred to as Hacker Summer Camp, is a proving ground for top researchers and often a stage for headline-grabbing hacks and exploits. This year will be no different, with attacks on implantable medical devices as well as smart cars on the agenda. What are the big trends at this year's Black Hat Briefings? To find out, we invited Dan Timpson, the Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert, back into the Security Ledger Studios to tell us about the talks and demonstrations that caught his eye and about the most important themes to emerge from this year's show. Dan Timpson, Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert. Dan, welcome to the Security Ledger Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me back again, Paul. Great to have you back. We're here today to talk about next week's Black Hat and DEF CON hacker conferences. It's hacker summer camp time out in Las Vegas. And uh, I know you're going to be out at the show with DigiCert. What are your official duties? Yeah, so I'm representing DigiCert and some of the things that we're doing here on the product front. I'll be speaking with uh, one of our customers at Philips, and we'll be doing a presentation on kind of security uh, best practices with connected devices and looking forward to presenting and also learning quite a bit at the conference. Lots of cool talks this year. So we've had a lot of conversations over the past years uh, on identity and information security, cybersecurity, particularly with the Internet of Things and a new talk by Charlie Miller and Chris Valasek, who did that famous Jeep Cherokee hack a few years back. And right. then um, the research team from Tencent uh, in China, Keen Security Lab, is going to be demonstrating some over-the-air hacks of uh, Tesla vehicles. What should we be thinking about these uh, proof-of-concept attacks on connected or autonomous vehicles? Well, first and foremost, I think it's great that we've got security researchers that are taking these systems through the paces, if you will. Uh, you know, when when you think about a car that doesn't have a steering wheel or a brake pedal or something like that, it's a little, um, you know, uncomfortable to some degree. But I think at the end of the day, there's software really at, at every stage. And so the things to think about are, you know, is the firmware signed? You know, what's the supply chain of the chips? Is there, you know, good integrity with uh, the makers? And um, can we use principles of um, crypto in, you know, throughout the process to validate the parts, you know, the systems and the software? Uh, because obviously when we're driving, we, we want to be safe and keep everyone else safe on the road. I mean, we've seen already, I, I think there was a, a fatal accident involved in a, not a, uh, a hack of a connected vehicle, but kind of a malfunctioning of, of some of the software, the sensing software that ran on it. So we, these are um, systems that can have real uh, flesh and blood consequences when things go wrong. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And um, you just reminded me that when we think about 
putting our faith and trust into algorithms. Um, One of the other cool talks that I hope to attend is the why algorithms are dangerous talk because, you know, it's good and bad. It's like all, you know, everything today is, you know, becoming more about automation or, you know, seeing what we can do with artificial intelligence and machine learning. Um, But when we're expecting an algorithm to do the right thing, uh, you know, that's kind of a dangerous proposition if we're losing the the human element um, as far as, uh, reasoning and so forth. You see at DEF CON and Black Hat um, a lot of concern or a lot of interest anyway in um, machine learning, artificial intelligence, both how it's going to be applied in information security. In other words, what types of work might we be able to do, um, but also what the implications of that are. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think it's super interesting on the flip side. Um, one of the talks is about can we use machine learning or AI to determine when social engineering is taking place. And so that's pretty intriguing. Um, in other words, and I, and I read something recently too about uh, AI capabilities that can look at your eye movement and figure out your personality type, which, uh, you know, we're starting to get to the point where you're looking at the data set being so large and the correlation between, you know, a data set and a particular, I don't know, attribute, a social, you know, attribute or personality characteristic. It's fascinating. So um, I think the responsibility then comes down to us as engineers and as business uh, leaders to strike the right balance because there's all kinds of new ethical uh, dilemmas that we're facing. Indeed, indeed. One of the other talks I noted, there's a really interesting presentation by Thomas Roth of this company, Level Down Security, Breaking the Industrial IoT. He's looking at the vulnerabilities of industrial control gateways. I know there have been a number of stories that have come out, you know, kind of in the last year about these types of systems either being compromised or at least targeted uh, by nation state actors in Ukraine and Saudi Arabia and so on. What are the issues here really are uh, with these with these gateways and, and why are we hearing about them now? Well, I think they're sort of the first uh, kind of coordinating system between, you know, the actual, you know, critical infrastructure, you know, tunnel systems or, you know, traffic lights or things like that, and the actual kind of software, uh, you know, uh, direction or you know interfaces you know to those things and so uh, they because they're they kind of play the you know traffic director role or kind of coordinating you know the system role um, they are the perfect target to uh, you know have hackers focus on and so the things that come into play again are just you know what's the threat models of these systems how well were they designed uh, against uh, attacks these software based attacks and there's just so much to think about there. It's really interesting, industrial control gateways, right? Uh, these are critical systems managing, you know, safety critical or mission critical environments. I think we all assume or the assumption would be that they're extra secure and extra hardened, but actually it's it's often the converse. So I guess one question is, what are the challenges of securing these systems? Why are they vulnerable to attack? Sometimes in ways that even just run-of-the-mill enterprise IT assets or not. Yeah, I love this question because what we do is we rewind, re, rewind history. And if you take a protocol that was designed uh, 15, 20 years ago, we didn't have the same kind of threats or bad actors that we do today or even the software knowledge that we do today. And so part of the problem is that um, protocol design even itself uh, didn't have an eye towards security best practice back in the day. Take something like HTTP and you look at Google's big push for HTTPS and an encrypted web. And um, 
you know, that's one ex- one example that the HTTP protocol, you know, there's plenty of attacks on that. And um, so when we look at these control systems in industrial gateways and so forth, we're, we're kind of in a similar situation where the design of a communication protocol was more about getting a system to run, but not designed with, again, that eye towards a security best practice where they were able to weave in identity, you know, encryption or, um, integrity into the model of the protocol. So that's one one of the things that's interesting. Um, and then the the other thing is that when you're talking about hardware-based systems or specialized chipsets, that the life cycle, the product life cycle is uh, not as nimble as maybe a software life cycle. And so there's more to think about from a design perspective upfront and even getting the, you know, those protections, those security protections built in from a hardware perspective early on. I mean, one arena we really see that in is medical devices. I know there's a big demonstration at Black Hat this year. Uh, Billy Rios is one of the top embedded systems and medical device white hat researchers out there. He's going to be doing some demonstrations of uh, remote attacks on implantable pacemaker devices. What are the challenges there in that in uh, medical device space? both the the devices that you see in your hospital room and then, of course, the devices that you may be wearing within your body. What are some of the challenges that uh, medical device manufacturers are encountering as they both want to leverage connectivity for management and and monitoring, but also want to do it securely? Uh, Well, you know, you hit on the first one is that once uh, it's implanted in my body or, you know, put on my body in some way, it's uh, deeply personal. And, um, you know, to your point earlier, it's like you want that software and that system to be working in your best interest uh, with the right and accurate data so that the and the mechanisms that kick into place are are doing the right thing. Yes, I will be presenting with Philips actually on this topic and we'll be laying out a framework both from kind of a, a system standpoint and a software standpoint on the things that that ought to occur during the development of these systems. And so, you know, this this talk on the medical devices where they're going to be hacking it, there was, you know, some breakdown along the way, either in the planning process or the threat models. And there's just so much more to think about when it comes to a medical device than, you know, maybe my desktop computer or a mobile device or something like that. But with medical devices, it is, it's deeply personal and uh, potential attacks or to cause harm are, you know, really big consequences. I would also say that it's a lot of the things that we would consider to be kind of good uh, security best practice of, you know, firmware signing and fuzz and boundary testing and using good secure uh, protocols and things like that. I think these types of attacks, you know, the the remote attack, wireless attack on an implantable pacemaker, this is kind of the stuff of Hollywood screenplays, you know. Um, are these problems or risks that people should treat as real and actual or more proof of concept you know, calling attention to the need for better security, but but maybe not things that people should be out there worrying about in real life. Yeah, I think I would say that they would be more kind of a proof of concept, um, and you know, calling calling to action. Um, I don't want to minimize the fact that uh, some of these attacks really are within reach, and so there's those considerations. But I think it's more about telling uh, the story and drawing attention to what we need to do better as a security community to keep people safe. Just talk a little bit about your presentation with Philips and kind of what some of the ground you guys are going to be covering. Yeah, for sure. So we are going to be looking at um, medical devices and with respect to principles of PKI and how medical device manufacturers or 
you know, producers of, you know, system software can use um, a framework to strengthen the security profile of what they're building. And so we'll be touching on kind of some tactical things to do now in the planning process, as well as, uh, you know, looking at, you know, maybe some software implications. So I think it will be a good session. I'm looking forward to it. So probably a good session for folks who are either in this industry or maybe um, in a company thinking about uh, developing a connected product like this to uh, check out and learn about uh, steps they should be taking as part of their planning and design. Exactly. I mean, the the nice thing about Philips is that they're a pretty well respected name. And my co presenter, Michael McNeil, he's you know got a long history of of improving the security of the products. So I think it's a, a chance. Like nothing is more valuable than what you can see where uh, maybe mistakes have been made in the past, and how you can uh, build a better process or framework for for handling some of those concerns. And so Philips, I think, will be a, a great uh, contributor to the discussion. So, I mean, it wouldn't be a security conference uh, if there wasn't a conversation about blockchain and cryptocurrencies. Black Hat's no different. There are a couple talks specifically looking at the blockchain. There's so much hype around cryptocurrencies. There's so much hype around the blockchain potentially as a new kind of platform for doing secure transactions and, and verifying um, data and transactions online. What's DigiCert's take on this? And I know you've got some R and D where you're where you're kind of taking a hard look at blockchain and some of its applications. What should our listeners uh, understand about what the state of the art is now, and and maybe what the potential is for this technology? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that comes up over and over again is should we be using blockchain? And I, I it's been a while ago, but I tweeted out a, a thing. I think it was from the Malware Tech blog which I thought was was uh, humorous, but yet truthful. And it was a little flow diagram on, should you use blockchain? And the first decision point is, are you making cryptocurrency? Um, if the answer is yes, then please stop. Um, if the answer is no, then no, you shouldn't use blockchain. <laughs> and so essentially everyone's right. trying it's to get a little bit Pretty simple of... <laughs> ideagram, right? <laughs> right. Everyone's trying to get some mindshare of this blockchain thing. Um, and there, there is a little bit of... Um, you know, I think you and I were chatting before some magical thinking on on the blockchain topic, and it's um, it's in the point in time where it's still being proven. You know, early probably one of the worst things you could do is is write your own implementation without uh, you know going and and coordinating a broader you know kind yeah. of standards effort. Right. <laughs> That's probably not the right, right. thing to do. <laughs> Um, don't roll your own. Yeah. <laughs> right. And, but on the, uh, you know, kind of on the legit, you know, or early, uh, traction for, for blockchain, I think we see, you know, at least with our R and D opportunities with like electronic health records or supply chain management. And this really gets at the core of how do you get an authentic product? And you take an apple, for example, like a, I'm going to eat an apple and we already put barcodes on these things today, but, uh, some of our research is, is showing, for instance, that we could, uh, you know, issue a, a certificate for that apple that could be tracked on a blockchain. And then if there were uh, like an E. coli bracket, uh, breakout or something like that, um, and, you know, this batch of apples was uh, affected, you could, you know, much more uh, efficiently trace that back to a, a source problem. So um, supply chain's good, electronic health records, but, you know, this is still, you know, the technology finding a place uh, on where it works. I think sometimes people talk about it like it's just going to like, well, we're just going to stop 
doing PKI and we're all just going to switch to the blockchain, but it doesn't really apples and oranges are really not the same thing, nor are they really intended for the same purposes. You're exactly right. Yeah. It, and, you know, to the point on the technology is still being proven. I mean, when was the last time you heard about, uh, you know, a crypto wallet being compromised or something like that, right? There's still quite a bit of of uh, software, you know, security or um, exploits that have been leveraged <laughs> to steal this stuff. Yeah. yeah. It's it's some non-trivial percentage of all Bitcoin <laughs> right, wallets right. that have been, you know, <laughs> what a, it's five five percent or seven percent or something. It's some eye-popping number, but yeah, um, it, it, it's it is a little bit of a wild west out there. Um, and so for for you, Digicert, you're a you're a um, company with a obviously a sterling reputation, um, um, uh, certificate authority, and identity provider online. Uh, you're throwing, you're devoting real R and D dollars to this. What do you think is low hanging fruit then? Well, I think one of the first things is to um, grab hold of the open source community, and we made an announcement recently that we're joining the Hyperledger initiative. And I think this is a really good thing. You know, you get the benefit of peer review and coordinating across the board with other headliner companies. You know, I think Cisco and IBM and Microsoft are a few that have also joined that initiative. So we're excited to see what's going to happen there. And I think the very first low-hanging fruit for us is to host a node in that network, essentially, so that we will you know, give something back to the community and also figure out where our core competencies of Digicert you know, with identity could complement the decentralized models. You're listening to the Security Ledger Podcast. This week's podcast is sponsored by Digicert. Digicert is the world's premier high-assurance digital certificate provider, simplifying SSL, TLS, and PKI, and providing identity, authentication, and encryption solutions for the web and for the Internet of Things. You can check them out at digicert.com. You know, Black Hat's always and DEF CON are always places to go to sort of see what's on the cutting edge and see maybe what's coming down the down the road a year or two in the future. Anything that's tickled your fancy that you're just curious about checking out? Yeah, I'm I'm really interested in that AI thread, you know, seeing what is going on, you know, where the, the early successes are for using, you know, AI and ML. So I'll probably hang out at that you know, a talk about the social engineering and that, um, you know, it's, I caught, um, you know, Google's announcement earlier in the year, you know, where they had their AI bot that could, you know, schedule appointments and stuff like that. I'm fascinated by that. So I'll be you know, looking to see what's happening there. And then there's so much fun, you know, to go get involved with. I think outside of that topic, the other would be like the deep neural networks, you know, for hackers and uh, kind of the methods that are available from an open source standpoint. I think that will be really good too. Yeah, I'll pick up on that. I And it's somewhat related. I think some of the most interesting talks this year uh, at both Black Hat and DEF CON have to do with um, uh, AI and, and bots and, and, um, and robots even, and kind of this, this um, edge that exists between artificial intelligence and human intelligence online and, and the role that AI is increasingly playing both on the, on the malware and bot side of things, on the sort of dark side of things, as well as obviously in, in the work that uh, computer security companies do. There's a really interesting talk by a researcher from University of Waterloo called Bot to Robot, How Abilities in Law Change with Physicality. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, we've been doing a lot just on uh, the, you know, with the midterms coming up and some of the online manipulation that's going on. It's just, it's just a really interesting 
area of the infosec discussion that's kind of branched off into sociology and I don't know, maybe even philosophy a little bit. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. That one does look pretty interesting too, you know, from bot to robot and the physicality aspect. I mean, it, it is intriguing. I think the thing that underscores all of this is that there is a, an unstated or unarticulated you know, set of requirements when it comes to, you know, us as people and our data. So I, I saw a funny t-shirt the other day that data is the new bacon. And when I can <laughs> um, harvest the data that I want, you know, it's, uh, it, it's, it's a game changer, you know, whether I could track a user yes. and, you know, or, or do something bad with that. And so um, it's just an opportunity for us, especially here at DigiCert to evangelize those principles of, of weaving in, strong authentication, yes. uh, you know, encryption yes. and um, integrity checks throughout the systems. You know, it's oftentimes just not stated, but it's uh, in inherently there in all the conversations we're in. It's really true. It's like the inability to really have and enforce strong identity online in so many different areas is, is really just, you look at it and it's just such a root problem, you know, um, and I, I, I look at like, for example, the, you know, the voting systems and the whole election system security issue, you know, which is at root is really an identity issue, right? Like, how do we verify individual voters and, and, and secure their vote? And, yeah. and we're kind of like, I, I'm frustrated and I wrote a piece on this, you know, we're like, we're beating up on, a, you know, direct record electronic voting systems, most of which were coded back in the late 1990s. And it's sort of like, this is a huge waste of time. You know, like why, why aren't we actually trying to figure out how you can actually have secure elections that also are a lot easier to participate in than, you know, going down to your local gym and, and you know, interacting with one of these 20 year old machines. And I totally agree. Yeah. <laughs> and, and, but like, but it's like, we're not having that conversation. Instead we're beating up on, you know, these systems that are running like Windows 2000 and, you know, IE5, you know, it's just like, okay, yeah. what, did, what did we just, just design? Yeah. yeah. Just designed in a different time. You know, they, they, it's just, it's just not even the same. Right. Right. But they're, you know, they're owned by municipalities. And of course they, they'll use voting machines for 30, 40, 50, a hundred years if they can. But I think you're totally right. It's, it's sort of like the ER conversation that we really need to have is one really about identity and, and just how to, how to do a better job of it in, in just so many different arenas. It's my fundamental belief when it comes to technologies that we really can change the world and solve a lot of, you know, really cool problems. Um, but, you know, to your point on, you know, the municipalities and like the voting machines, it's like, um, as, you know, business influencers, how can we, how can we move the needle to incorporate good, um, secure technology to solve those problems, uh, you know, sooner and, and better, uh, you know, whether it's energy or voting or, you know, or what have you. Listen, thank you so much for coming on uh, security ledger podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I always appreciate the time and, uh, look forward to our continued conversations. We were speaking with Dan Timpson. Dan is the Chief Technology Officer at DigiCert. Up next, against the backdrop of dire warnings about electronic incursions onto the U.S. electrical grid and other critical infrastructure, the Department of Homeland Security's announcement last week that it was standing up a National Risk Management Center should have come as a big relief. But is it? In our second segment, we speak with two experts on critical infrastructure security. Emily Miller is the Director of National Security and Critical Infrastructure Programs with the firm Mokana, 
and a former Chief of Process Management, Measurement, and Exercise Planning at Department of Homeland Security. Jeffrey Slotnick is the president of Cetracon Enterprise Security Risk Management Services and chair of ACES International's Critical Infrastructure Protection Working Group. Both Emily and Jeffrey agree that it is way too early to know whether the new National Risk Management Center is the fix for the nation's cybersecurity woes. For one thing, Miller notes that the center doesn't appear to have its own budget and already overlaps in its mission with two existing response centers within the Department of Homeland Security. I started off by asking Emily and Jeffrey their thoughts about the new center and why the DHS is choosing to stand up the new center now. Jeffrey A. Slotnick, CPP, PSP, President Cetricon Enterprise Security Risk Management Services. And I'm Emily Miller. I'm the Director of National Security and Critical Infrastructure Programs with Mokana. Thank you both for coming on the Security Ledger podcast. We're here to talk about the news that came out this week from the Department of Homeland Security that it is standing up a new national risk management center that's described as a, quote, one-stop shop for helping private companies manage cybersecurity risk. And I guess the idea here is to stand up an interagency center to really assess critical infrastructure risk across the whole economy. Um, you know, so uh, this has traditionally been siloed within different industries. It's like energy or manufacturing or finance. This center, I'm guessing, will will pull all those risk views together in, in, in one place. I guess first question would be, what are your thoughts on this? And, and why, in your opinion, is uh, Department of Homeland Security coming out with this now? This center, so I, I previously worked with the Department of Land Security. This center has kind of been batted about a little bit. Uh, at least it was still sort of in the background discussions when I left last August. So that would be August 2017. The conversation at the time was, what unique value is this National Risk Management Center going to bring when we already have a physical critical infrastructure center that's the National Infrastructure Coordinating Center, or the NIC, and a Cybersecurity Coordinating Center, which is the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center. So I'm really not clear. I wasn't back in 2017, and I'm still not today. <laughs> Very clear on what <laughs> this new risk management center is supposed to do. It kind of seems like it pulls those two together. But of course, by creating this new organization, they haven't gotten rid of those other two things. Right. And the NIC has been co-located with the NKIC for a year and a half, two years now. Yes. So physical infrastructure and the cybersecurity infrastructure have been co-located for some time. And I understand that they're trying to do that also because they're looking to reorganize uh, CSNC, so the, the actual organization that's over on top of all of this, that's the organization that Chris Krebs leads. Uh, and they're trying to turn it into the, I forget what the action, I know it's CISA, but it's something critical infrastructure, something, 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 which is making physical and cyber come together. Um, but I'm particularly concerned and curious because there's no extra budget right now. So they have a very clear mission at the NKIC with very specific functions, including a public-private partnership, including industry uh, integration, including uh, representatives from the FBI sitting on the floor of the NKIC. 
Uh, and the statement that Kirsten Nielsen made was that they are going to leverage resources from existing uh, organizations, which I only assume means the NCIC, to staff up the risk management center. So what does that do to the mission of the NCIC? What resources are they taking? Who are they taking? There's some great people there. This could be really successful, but I really don't know what they're doing that's different. Well, you know, uh, I think the National Cybersecurity and Communications Integration Center is a beginning effort. You know, there was a lot that was learned as we went along in the development of critical infrastructure, and as as my colleague said, uh, the the NCIC and how we evolved into that. You know, it was it took a, a period of years before we evolved into that, and I do feel that this is a good starting point, uh, and that it will evolve over time. You know, the private sector has a lot of resources that it brings to the table. You know, things like InfraGuard are working very well on informing. Uh, private sector and and bringing that information uh, back to to the federal government. Uh, I think an expansion of that, you know, in order to grasp early warning, uh, so that potential situations can be addressed. You know, there's there is a lot at risk in private sector, uh, especially uh, in critical communications and in industrial communications uh, such as SCADA systems. Uh, that I think are going to benefit from this early warning system. This announcement comes amid some very dire warnings from Department of Homeland Security, FBI, intelligence community about threats to our critical infrastructure. The grid, electric grid, is often mentioned as a target of state-sponsored hackers. Why have we been unable to... um, keep foreign actors off of our critical infrastructure? Where have our efforts to secure these uh, critical networks, critical systems and functions um, fallen short uh, in the last, uh, let's say, 10 or 15 years? Well, you know, this is an evolving threat. And, you know, we we saw what Russia did in Georgia uh, as a precursor attack using cyber. Uh, We've seen what North Korea has done. We've seen what uh, what has uh, occurred with China towards the United States. And we've also seen what other actors have done with things like Stuxnet. You know, when you look at a lot of the issues that have occurred, many of them have their nexus in physical security. So the ability to educate people on, you know, devices brought into the workplace, thumb drives that shouldn't be brought in, people carrying out information, uh, but even if we get more advanced, we, we live in a, in a world today where physical security technologies are integrated on the same cyber backbone uh, as other cyber systems. Why not conjoin those systems? For example, you have an access control card to enter the building and you have an access control center or an access control system to enter the cyber network. Uh, why not conjoin those systems? And in many cases, those systems are using the same access control card, but they're independent. You, you, compl- you uh, create system redundancy uh, utilizing a system like that that could be early warning to a potential event. So there's a lot that Jeff said there that I am nodding my head going, yes, absolutely, including his comments about the evolving technology and evolving approach, having a richness 
um, when you involve more people. Certainly when we talk about innovation, uh, you know, you can get into the groupthink patterns if you have the same people doing the same things. But back to your original question um, about, you know, why we haven't really been successfully able to protect information center, because we have things, excuse me, um, critical infrastructure, why we have not been able to protect critical infrastructure. We have in place information sharing structures. We have in place all the good things that uh, Jeff was talking about and that you alluded to. And yet we're still seeing really gnarly and scary uh, attacks. And I, I scary not in the, the red light is blinking way, but scary in the, oh my, we have access to the human machine interface. And not only do they have access, they have command and control of a human machine interface. And my goodness, it appears that they have corrupted a safety instrumentation system, which uh, is the last line of defense on a, on a process. And not only that, but they have the resources to reverse engineer that safety system. Uh, these are not network-based problems. They certainly are getting through the network, uh, and they're, you know, I don't want to throw defense in depth methodology out with the bathwater. However, the crux of our challenge right now is that we are not able to protect the devices that actually control these processes. Certainly, you need everything that we've been talking about, threat hunting, vulnerability management, all of that is very important, risk assessment methodology, etc. It's not working when we're talking about the types of threats that we're facing. So back to Jeff's original point when he was saying the evolving technology, evolving approach, and having innovation. If we are able to actually look at the challenges in front of us and get out of the group think and really innovate and learn the lessons of industry and harness the power of the public-private partnership, and, you know, really, you know, let the, the NCIC do its mission and what it's doing and use this as the, the, you know, the hardcore, let's really get some innovators here, let's figure out what some of the challenges are. That would be phenomenal. What I worry is that the conversation is still about this network level approach. Well, I mean, so Emily, for you, what, what would a real action and real progress look like as opposed to what we've got, which is a new cross-function group with an unclear budget and a not totally clear mandate? I don't have a formulated response to that, you know, mm -hmm. and that is what one of the issues that, you know, I, I grapple with in my job on a day-to-day -day basis. So part of what I do is try to shake up the conversation a little bit, but then the question about, you know, what is, what are the answers? And I think we need to make sure we have at the table in this, you know, new risk, risk management center that we have at the table folks who are thinking differently about these problems. If we're talking about fundamentally changing how we address security to respond to a process control challenge, we need to bring in the process engineer type people. The security folks who sit at the table, really smart, good folks. And, you know, the NKIC has people who have worked on process control. So they do have very good experts in control system security and uh, IoT as well. But most of the people who come to the table are background IT professionals. And they pr approach everything from the network layer. And 
And again, there are very, very good reasons to do that. Um, but fundamentally, the business that we are trying to protect is the production of goods and services or essential services. So we're not trying to, you know, solve the problem by uh, having a network monitoring. That's great. That's not actually protecting your business, um, you know, or something like that. So having people who understand what is actually at stake, who have done the work, and who can sit with these professionals uh, who are looking at this from more of an IT perspective to really tease out what are, what are the major concerns? And, you know, I think major concerns and then what are some innovative solutions and plumbing the depths of our industry to figure out who's, got, who's an innovator here? Who are the people who are thinking differently and how can we provide that expertise to the department? Um, so it's not more of the same. I mean, it, it strikes me. I was in Israel last year for Cyber Week, and and over there they talk a lot about kind of the effort that they made in the early two thousands or late nineties to sort of um, see the cyber threat coming to critical infrastructure, and to really marshal the nation's resources to address it. So they they really came at it from a a very kind of uh, top down approach of the military and government more or less coming in and saying, listen, uh, you control or own part of the electric grid, your critical infrastructure, and we're basically going to kind of come in and tell you how to do cybersecurity because you, we can't afford to have you fail. I don't know, but my sense is in the U.S. that, again, we're, we still, uh, there's a reluctance to do that, and uh, we leave it more or less up to the private sector to um, address these risks um, on, on their own. Um, and I guess by by extension, we're prepared to deal with the consequences of failure as well. Although I'm not sure that we are. But um, so, I mean, Jeff, what 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 are your what are your thoughts? I mean, is there uh, are we on a war footing here, or is this more turning knobs and dials and saying we've got some stuff right, but we just need to tweak and adjust and tuck a little bit and, and do a better job? Well, you know, it's funny that you you mentioned the word war footing. I, you know, we're, we're fighting an initial you know initial probings. You know, at the same time, we're trying to build an army. Again, we went through this with critical infrastructure protection. Private sector holds a lot of risk. When they can't produce what they produce, then they lose money. Uh, whether that's, you know, a, a major software manufacturer or uh, someone that produces movies, whatever. But they also have a lot of assets and resources to protect their information and protect their systems globally. And a lot of times, federal government can be a bit stodgy in its approach. When you bring the motivation of private sector and, and conjoin it uh, with the, the knowledge, skills, abilities, and capabilities of federal government, uh, you have a win-win. And, and everybody has the ability to benefit from the joint knowledge that's mm -hmm. shared. You know, again, I'd, I'd, you know, you look at where we were at in critical infrastructure and in critical infrastructure protection in 2001, and look where we're at today in 2018. It's, it's a whole different place. People have plans. We have exercises to address critical infrastructure, but we're looking, you know, 17 years down the road. So we have to start somewhere in cyber. And we've started it. We've got all the different ISACs for the different, you know, different uh, uh, verticals. And 
I, I do think that bringing those ISACs together at a very high level uh, and bringing private sector in, into the, the situation is just going to provide a plethora of knowledge and resources to solve this issue. How are we going to measure success here? Um, my kind of somewhat jaded view as a reporter covering cybersecurity is often these announcements from the federal government or even state governments happen and there's kind of a press conference and fanfare and then, you know, you don't you don't hear that much in the wake of them. Um, you know, new, new new layers of bureaucracy are created and then it's it's often hard to follow up on them and see what what came out of it. So what should we be looking for as we assess whether um, this particular new um, uh, National Risk Management Center is um, hitting the ground running and and making things happen? Emily, why don't we start with you? So I, I think there is an answer there that we can't provide yet until we know precisely what the National Risk Management Center is going to do, because the metrics depend entirely on what outcomes is this center trying to achieve. And they haven't made that clear yet in a very specific way that you could have, you know, this is the the, the KPIs and the key performance indicators that are going to tell us whether we are achieving that outcome. Something that you did say, though, that really caught my attention, I did want to kind of come back to, is when you gave the Israeli example that the government came in and they said, this is what you're going to do. I can tell you that that is not going to work for for our industry. We can't say, we're here in front of you, we're here to help you, but actually we're going to stand behind you and we're going to tell you what to do because we know best. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One, we don't. <laughs> and two, that really won't mm-hmm. work. The, gov- the industry will not tolerate unfunded mandates, new layers of bureaucracy. Uh, we really need to make sure that we're harnessing the power of the public-private partnership to really speed and innovate innovation and speed and incentivize into innovation rather i didn't mean the redundant office of redundancy <laughs> um <laughs> so i wasn't going to call you on it but <laughs> i called myself on it i heard that come out of my mouth that was terrible <laughs> we may need to incentivize incentivize this we may need to you know look at you know decompose the problem what are the elements that we're trying to solve there's certainly an information sharing element that needs to be solved because right now industry is not really sharing back to the government and then they complain that what they're getting from the government is not meaningful but then there's also that part of Network level security, although very important for a lot of different reasons, is not solving the problem that we're seeing in terms of our actual threat environment. So maybe putting out to industry and saying, here's some money on the table. Come to us with some solutions. Show us what this looks like. And potentially road testing that because there are technologies today that are starting to answer some of these questions. Can we do that in a way that is cost effective, scalable and proves to industry that we can we can do this? Final question. Um, do uh, I know that in the Obama administration, they added voting and election systems as, as a critical infrastructure. In, in your opinion, are we are we accounting for all the critical infrastructure that's out there? Are there um, are there are there attacks or vulnerabilities in our economy and our society that we are not uh, adequately accounting for or that are, in fact, critical infrastructure that we just don't consider as such? Um, uh, or the 17, I think, that we have, you know, dams and chemical and manufacturing, or is that, is that pretty much it? 
Well, I'll take a stab at that one. Um, categorically, in terms of the categories, I think we pretty much have it. Um, back when we were doing the physical infrastructure, there was a lot of movement of pieces into, you know, postal services. Where does that sit? You know, where does education fall out? That sort of thing. So categorically, I think we're we got the right mix. What I don't think we've done spectacularly well is understanding what quote unquote is critical. So we have the level one and the level two criticality, but which is the national level stuff. But then when you get down into level three, level four and level five, which is regional, more local, and then the ultra local, like the mom and pop type of stuff. That's where I think we have a bit of a challenge in addressing criticality. And not only from the government side and identifying that and using the power of state and local government as well, but also from an industry perspective, I can't tell you the number of times I have people tell me, owner operators, well, I'm not critical infrastructure, even though they fall into one of the categories. And in fact, they have a regional significance. Mm -hmm. They tell me I'm not critical infrastructure. Well, of course you are. You may not be a nationally level critical in infrastructure, but very few are. I do think we, you know, in large terms, we encompass the, you know, the, the major aspects of, of our society in the 17 areas of critical infrastructure. But there are a lot of subsets of those that we really didn't do a good job of addressing um, when we started looking at infrastructure. And I'm going to give you an example of that. You know, uh, water utilities are considered critical infrastructure. And we looked at major utilities, you know, the, the uh, so many hundred thousand connections and more. But we have a good portion of our country that is dependent on rural water systems. Uh, so what the analogy I'm trying to make is that there are a lot of smaller players in there. And in the cyber world, all it takes is one access point. So we, we cannot address cyber the same way we addressed physical infrastructure. Everybody has to be involved in this and all levels of society from your major corporations and major, major government entities down to your smaller operators. Because if there is a point of vulnerability, eventually uh, the adversary will find that point of vulnerability. So I think we have to address this equally across the board. Thanks, Jeff. That's exactly the point I was trying to make. You did a much better job of saying it less technically <laughs> than I did. Thanks, both of you, Emily and uh, Jeff. Thanks so much for coming on and speaking to us on the Security Ledger podcast. Thanks so much, Paul. We appreciate it. Jeff, it was great to speak with you. Yeah, same here. It was, uh, it was pretty awesome, Paul. Thank you very much for the opportunity. Emily Miller is the Director of National Security and Critical Infrastructure Programs with the firm Mokana. Jeffrey Slotnick is the President of Cetracon Enterprise Security Risk Management Services. They were here talking to us about the Department of Homeland Security's brand new National Risk Management Center. <laughs>